this morning. Happy Mother's Day to you, those who are mothers. I am extremely grateful for God's graces in my life, just tokens of his kindness, examples of his kindness, as I consider the contributions of my mother, my mother-in-law, my wife. Those are demonstrations of his grace, and I trust that you will take time today to give thanks to him for those who have contributed to your life and growth in him. We come to another passage in 1 Peter that is challenging. And I'll tell you, as we've worked through this section, each week I'm thinking maybe this will lighten up for me. These are intimidating sections for a pastor to wrestle with because they're so countercultural. They confront how we think. And Peter is really addressing this principle that Jesus spoke of that we're to love our enemies, love those that are hard on us that are not easy to love. And we find that again here in chapter 3. None of us like to be put in a vulnerable position. But Peter has been describing several positions of weakness and vulnerability, showing how Jesus Christ shapes our behavior in situations like these. The gospel applies in the most difficult of circumstances. And this one is perhaps the most intense because it's the most personal. Let's look at verses 1 through 7 of 1 Peter chapter 3 as Peter addresses wives and then husbands. This is God's living word today to us, his people. Verse 1 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's ask for God's help and blessing as we look at this text together. Father, we come before you recognizing our need again to submit ourselves, our wills, our thoughts to your word. Lord, we confess that our lives, our thinking is shaped so much by culture, sometimes even unconsciously. And so in a text like this, we must come humbly and honestly submitted to the fact that this is your word. You know better than our culture. You know better than our own wisdom. You know how we are to live. You are our designer, our maker, and our savior. So Lord, I pray that you would grow our trust of your wisdom, of your sovereign grace, as we look at this text together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning, in our text this morning, God calls
believing spouses to godly lives that demonstrate the power of the gospel. God calls believing spouses to godly lives that demonstrate the power of the gospel. In our text this morning, Peter, next in this series, pastorally addresses some of the most vulnerable in these congregations. He would have certainly understood how incredibly challenging it would have been for these Christian women to submit to unbelieving husbands, for that is who he's addressing. It's Christian wives collectively, but specifically he's going to talk about those who are married to unbelieving husbands. Peter's been focused on those in the relationship who have the lesser power, who are most likely to be facing abuse of that power, those in the weaker position. And it's very likely that he does this again in this series, first with government, then with servants or slaves, and now with wives, because their vulnerable position is representative of the church as a whole. So automatically, lest you say in your mind, this is to specific people, and I don't fit into one of these two cases. Well, you can't dismiss that because Peter's just using this as an illustration of how we're to think of our authorities. And there are many, many applications in these sections for all of God's people. Remember, this section is intended to flesh out chapter 2, 12 and 13, where Peter has said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. So this morning we'll consider this passage in two parts. First, the responsibility of wives, and then the responsibilities of husbands. First, the responsibilities of wives. Christian wives should hear this passage in the positive, encouraging, comforting sense that Peter intends it. They have the unique opportunity, the unique responsibility to demonstrate the power of the gospel through their godly conduct even in a difficult, we might say unsatisfying, even a perhaps harsh marriage. For us today, this passage can be viewed as incredibly out of step with the culture. Perhaps you might have read this and said, well, this is certainly tone deaf, isn't it? According to popular current sentiment, this passage seems to push women back into the dark ages. Perhaps. Perhaps not. But to measure God's word by a culture that is fighting at every turn against him is both dangerous and very unwise. When we come to scripture like this, we have to submit ourselves to his wisdom, to his word, to his revelation. As much as we might struggle with this and feel like, is this really fair? We come back again to what we know about our God. He is wiser than me. He loves those in this weaker position far better than I do. And he is much more qualified to determine what is just and what is not. So we come here uh, humbly. It would be arrogant of us to try to tell God how he should think and speak. We're to humbly respond and hear how our creator designed for us to thrive. This is an opportunity for us again to evaluate where am I at in my thinking? 
What am I letting form my opinions and values and convictions? This passage was viewed out of step with the culture when Peter wrote it. But it was actually out of step for the very opposite reasons. You see, no respected writer in Peter's day would ever even write directly to slaves or to women. They would never address them. It was a breach of the accepted social order. But the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Peter, is giving wives and slaves a greater moral responsibility and significance. He's elevating them. He's speaking directly to their condition and giving them hope. So as we consider the responsibilities of wives, we first are called to embrace, wives are called to embrace faith-filled, voluntary submission. Verse 1 begins, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This command, be subject, has been the pattern throughout this section. And notice that Peter is calling for voluntary submission. Notice who he's addressing, wives. You choose to submit. There's no place either here or in the rest of the New Testament where God's word commands the man, the husband, to ensure that their wives submit to him. That's not their responsibility. This is a wife's responsibility, both to God and before him. Now, all wives are addressed in general in the passage. And wives of unbelieving husbands are addressed specifically. Note that phrase there in verse 1 that states, even if some do not obey the word. This passage is for all wives then to consider how they view their marriage, no matter its health currently. It also applies to all women in that the text is highlighting several principles of how God expects all Christians to think and respond to authority. Therefore, it applies for all of us. Peter uses this phrase, they do not obey the word, in several places in his letter. And for Peter, this disobedience is his way of referring to unbelievers and the actions they're taking in rejecting the word that they've heard, the word of the gospel. They failed to submit and respond to his call to receive the truth. This passage is demonstrating the difficulty and vulnerability of a wife who's married then to an unbelieving husband. And I want you to just pause and let's think of those that Peter is writing to first before we start thinking of our situation. Consider the challenges that would have been the norm for believing wives married to unbelievers in the first century. The husband would have likely seen her embrace of Christianity as a commitment to a dangerous superstition or cult. A cult that directly went against expected norms. In the first century, the wife was fully expected to choose to follow his religion. That was seen as part of her duty. That's what it meant to be a wife. Christian wife would have to refuse to worship his gods or to take part in the ordinary religious ceremonies of their home throughout their calendar year. This would almost certainly be viewed as a rejection of his authority and maybe even him. And certainly this would have caused no small amount of hardship and pain and conflict and stress on that marriage. Peter is speaking to encourage them, to give them hope. 
Peter instructs women to focus on living a life that demonstrates the power of the gospel to change her life. Doesn't this fit within that theme that Peter's been talking about? The gospel changes us from the inside out. And he's saying, let that be seen. The goal is to win him to Christ without a word, we see in verse 1. Peter's not saying that she should never verbally share the gospel with him, but she must not try to argue or badger him into turning to Christ. The primary influence on husbands will not be the speech of wives, but their godly behavior. Think about that principle. So often, I know I'm tempted to try to argue somebody with my logic or my reasoning into a position that seems to be best for them, right? We're convinced that we're helping so often. But Peter's saying patience, godly behavior, often has a much, much greater influence. We can be confident often that we can argue people into our point of view. Peter says, don't put your confidence here. It's easy for us to use our tongues. Think about how easy it would be for wives in this circumstances to use their tongue to put their husband in place and say, well, I'm not really under your authority. I'm under God's authority. Think how they might be tempted to strike back, to be disrespectful, either directly or passive aggressively. These are not godly options, Peter's saying. The believing wife's ordinary, ongoing, respectful conduct commends her to her husband and the love of Christ after the pattern of Christ. This was meant to catch his attention, to say something is different about her. It had the potential to soften him in a way that her words could not and cause him to ask from where such a deep and internal change had come. Peter's later instructions in chapter 3, 15 and 16 would apply here in the home where he writes, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone, even your husband, who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, even by your husband, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Lee Strobel, the well-known author of The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, several other books, he was an atheist. As an investigative journalist, he believed only what he could prove to be true. He did not believe that the existence of God could be a fact. He couldn't see it demonstrated. So therefore, he rejected it. It makes perfect logical sense. Logic ruled his every decision. That is, until his wife, a self-proclaimed agnostic, converted to Christianity. When his wife first began attending church and talking about Jesus, he thought his marriage was over. But little did he know It would be her conversion that would become the catalyst that would change the trajectory of his life forever. After my wife became a Christian, I began to see positive changes in her character and values, he said, noting he observed a marked difference in the way she treated people and cared for others. He decided it was now time to put his professional investigative skills to work in his personal life, and that began his research into the life of Christ. Her life 
caused him to ask real questions about his own soul. Augustine, in his Confessions, demonstrates this principle from his own parents' lives. He writes of his own mother. And as he writes, he's praying with thanksgiving to the Lord. He writes, when she came to marriageable age, she was bestowed upon a husband and served him as her Lord. And she did all she could to win him to you, speaking to him of you by her behavior, whereby you made her beautiful and reverently lovable and admirable to her husband. Finally, when her husband was now at the end of his earthly life, she won him to you. Ladies, is your relationship with Christ making a visible difference in the way that you live? Is the gospel changing you from the inside out? Can your co-workers see it? Can your children? Can your husband? Peter is saying that the loving, voluntary, and gracious submission of a Christian wife to her husband, even her unsaved husband, is perhaps the strongest evangelistic tool she has. The gospel is so powerful. It can infuse and strengthen a woman in a vulnerable position in a marriage to an unsaved man so that one day in heaven there will be men there who owe their eternal salvation to the godly life and good deeds of a wife who determined to live out her days in real, costly, faithful submission. Think of just how encouraging This word is to a wife in a difficult marriage. Now the word for respect in verse 2 is perhaps not the best translation. To whom is the wife being respectful? It kind of makes that unclear. Well, the Greek word behind this is phobos, where we get our translation or our idea of the word of phobias or fears. It's the idea of fear. But this is a Godward fear that Peter's been teaching throughout his epistle contrasted to the fear we'll later see and Peter says don't have later in this section. Peter's point is that the wife's conduct is to be based on her relationship with Christ. One author helpfully writes, wives do not submit in order to satisfy a husband's vanity or to promote his reputation. Neither do they submit to show how godly they are. Or to avoid conflict, nor to impress the neighbors, nor to manipulate their husbands. And not even because she thinks that he is wise and she respects him. She submits because of her relationship and trust in God. Paul makes that same radical point in Ephesians 5. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now that would have been nothing new to the Ephesians. Their culture said submit to your husbands. But he adds what's new and Christ-like in that final little phrase. He says submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's what's new. That's what's different. You're not ultimately submitting to a male, to any other authority in your life as if they are supreme. You're submitting to your God. This is the foundation for everything else that Peter will say in this text. It's the secret. This is the secret to a wife's fearless confidence, even even in a place of vulnerability. 
He's not ultimately entrusting herself to another fallen, sinful, imperfect human being. That's what we struggle with, right? Why would I give myself to the authority of some man or some authority that might misuse that authority? God's reassuring us here that that's not ultimately what he's asking you to do. Instead, she gives herself to the one who will never, ever fail her. Never leave her or forsake her. Never take advantage of her. Though her circumstances may be discomfortable, may be hard to bear, he's the one who always gives of himself for her good and her flourishing because he alone loves her the deepest and most fully. Because her focus is on him, she can be radically secure. She can be radically humble, knowing that he knows her in her deepest need and her darkest sins hidden in her heart, and yet he's not repulsed by her. Because Jesus is the Savior of sinful men and women, he pursues her still. This is the hope for every spouse, male or female, every sinner. It also demonstrates that submission for wives to their husbands is not absolute. Peter's providing a spiritual hierarchy. In the text, Peter is masterfully both upholding and subverting the common social order of the day. He's affirming God's wise design of the roles in marriage while protecting the wife from the sinful overreach of a man's authority. Do you see that? I want to very briefly highlight what submission here does not mean. Submission does not mean that your husband can ask you to sin. It doesn't mean that he can ask you to surrender your faith in Christ. It doesn't mean that you must never disagree with him. It does not mean that if he's unfaithful to you, that you're left without biblical recourse. It does not mean that you must suffer physical abuse or abandonment through continued verbal assault and threats. Peter is providing here a general principle. He leaves the specifics of how to wrestle with specific situations to churches and pastors to work out together prayerfully and humbly and carefully. A wife has recourses, recourse. She has resources to get help from trusted people to help her think and respond biblically to her circumstances. And to pursue this kind of course is always good and right, always biblical and wise. Secondly, wives are encouraged to pursue internal, imperishable beauty. Peter tells us in these two verses that the adornment God desires is not external, but it's internal. Look again at verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Again, let me clear away everything this does not mean. This does not mean that scripture is stating stating that how you look does not matter at all. This is not a command to look as frumpy as possible to show you're godly, right? It's also not stating that the wife is intended to function as a docile, silent partner in the marriage. 
One pastor notes that we must not take these verses with an Amelia Bedelia type of wooden literalness. Amelia Bedelia is that fictitious children's book character who serves in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Rogers. When they tell her to make a sponge cake, she stacks several sponges on top of each other and puts frosting on them and says, well, that's a sponge cake, right? It's silly in her literalness. But interpreting the passage this way would mean that women should never braid their hair, they should never wear any jewelry with gold in it, and they should not wear any clothing. But that obviously can't be what Peter is saying. He's not giving fashion tips here. He's not making any new clothing laws. But here's the question the task, the text rather, is asking you to consider. Ladies, in what area of your life are you investing most carefully? What do your actions betray about where you believe true beauty is found? Physical beauty, no matter how carefully cultivated, Peter is saying, will fade over time. But internal beauty, investing in spiritual growth and maturity, lasts forever. What Peter is explaining is that what a person is on the inside does not remain hidden. What you value most will show itself in your life, in your behavior, in your conversation. And gentleness and a quiet spirit do not mean weakness. This is not a personality type commended for every single lady. It's not something that you put on or manufacture. It's a description of Christ-like maturity. You see, Jesus tells us that he himself is gentle and humble in heart. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, this description invites us to himself. It's exceedingly winsome. It isn't loud and brash and demanding to be heard and seen. It's simply Christ-like maturity. Most importantly, this is what God values. Your growth in Christ-likeness. Notice what he says. In God's sight, this is very precious. God's paying attention to the character you're cultivating in your life. These are incredibly affirming and comforting words. God sees. He calls this response very precious. The beauty of a Christ-following heart is noticed and affirmed and valued by your God. Are you embracing those values? You see, it never fades. It's not a fad. It matters to him who matters most. Think of this advertisement. Eternal beauty is available. It comes with hard work. It comes with some serious responsibility. This is true spiritual beauty. Third, we observe exemplary, fearless faith. We both see it and we're to observe it. We're supposed to put it on as well. Peter gives us an example of this kind of woman. And I'm so glad that he chose Sarah. Because Sarah's not just a simple, plastic person as portrayed in the Bible, is she? We're told that holy women, women who lived in a way that pleased God that he took notice of, adorned themselves with humble submission to imperfect husbands because ultimately they trusted in their God. 
So let's consider the example of Sarah. It's interesting, isn't it? She was not a weak woman who never shared her thoughts with her husband. She was no doormat. Sometimes she sinfully went too far. But scripture portrays her faith and her life as precious and beautiful. And Peter says this was her strength. Submission is not weakness in her life. Now consider when Sarah demonstrated this mission, submission to her husband, calling him Lord. Where did that happen? Can you recall that? It's rather obscure, actually. It's from Genesis chapter 18. Let me read you that passage. This is uh, the Lord and the angels when they come to Abraham. And they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The narrator says that to say, this is going to be impossible with them. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Again, this is really impossible for them. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now notice, even in her doubting response, Sarah is demonstrating an attitude of submission and respect to her husband. Not in what she says about him, in what she thinks privately. Nobody could hear this. And the Holy Spirit in his wisdom reveals what's happening inside her heart and mind. And even there, when no one can hear, she's still respectful and submissive to her husband. This is true submission. It's internal. That shows itself outwardly. Peter says you can be just like her if you keep choosing to do good without fear of your husband in spite of your vulnerability. Consider how we heard this from one of the Proverbs we heard this morning. Proverbs 31.25 says, Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. First, Peter's describing where her strength and fearlessness are found. They're found in her hope in God. She can laugh at an uncertain future because she's mature. She's grounded in the settled conviction that her God is sovereign. And working for her good all the time. She knows this because of all Christ did in his submitting to the Father's will. These truths form the bedrock of her faith. She can laugh fearlessly. That's a challenge, isn't it? When anxieties and worry and stress overcome us, do you respond to uncertainty in your future with laughter? Because you know who's in control? Can you see that Peter is in no way demeaning women? These are words of grace and affirmation. My prayer for you is that you would see God's word uplifting and encouraging men and women to embrace God's view of how he designed us to work together for his glory. To show us the power of his gospel. To demonstrate that through the way we think and live and behave. Our world's view of gender today is so toxic and dangerous. 
Both genders grasp at power and the upper hand as if that's what's most important. I have to be affirmed. I have to show you my value. You must take me seriously. That's not the Bible's view. But power and influence, significant and meaning, are not found in one gender claiming supremacy over the other. Our significance is found in pursuing God and his glory, letting the gospel do its work, quietly, often, patiently, over time. More than we want, he wants our marriages to be joyful. And he alone provides hope when we find our marriages to be difficult and painful and filled with unmet expectations. No matter what the state of your marriage is, your only hope for joy and endurance is found in his perspective and in his grace. Will you embrace his view? Next, we see very quickly the responsibility of husbands. A Christian husband is called to a different kind of submission here. Paul said the same in Ephesians 5.21. We submit to one another. The man is submitting to his God-given and God-designed duty to be sensitive to the needs, the fears, and feelings of his wife. He doesn't look down on her because she's different. A Christian husband needs to subordinate his needs to her. In recent weeks, I've been meditating on Mark 10.45. My son and I have been discussing this and talking about it as we drive to school. It says to us, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And I want you to notice that title. The Son of Man. The King over all kings. The ruler of all the ages. The one who has every right to receive service for all time. The perfect king. Serves. And he serves people that are far beneath him in worth. Far beneath him in faithfulness. This is what biblical leadership and strength looks like. Self-sacrificing service. It leans in. It's active. It's proactive. It says, let's go do this. Let's come with me. It takes the initiative to care for the wife physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Verse 7 calls men to this kind of Christ-like service. First, it calls us to pursue a growing understanding. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. The husband is responsible to pursue a unique togetherness found only in marriage. Live with your wife. Men, if there's a drift in the marriage, it's your responsibility to find a time and a place to pursue oneness. Certainly your wife can do that as well, but you are the one commanded here to live with her in an understanding way. You take the initiative. The husband is to be actively protecting and promoting the health of his marriage. It shouldn't be the wife who's initiating that. That would be discouraging to her. Husbands lead spiritually. As one author observed, chains do not hold a marriage together. It is threads, hundreds of tiny threads, 
which sew people together through the years. So husbands, how are you finding ways to sow your life to your wives? Are you allowing your priorities at work, your hobbies to keep you apart? You're called here to set some of those aside so that you will knit your life to hers intimately in an understanding way. Secondly, embrace lifelong care. He says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Peter tells husbands that wives are worthy of honor. Just as for the wives, men are to honor because this is how they submit to Christ. Just as women were called to worship and submit to Christ by submitting to their husbands, husbands are called to worship and submit to Christ by honoring their wives. You're to see her as valuable, even though she's different than you, even though sometimes communication is fraught with peril or hardship. It's not always easy. The weaker vessel here refers to two ideas. First, the woman is not as physically strong as the man. That's it. That's the difference. They're not inferior emotionally, spiritually, mentally. He's really just pointing out they're just different physically. He's to look out for her, to allow his expectations for her to be informed by her nature as different than his own. This is God's good design. No way does this mean she's inferior. Second, in this time period, she would have been in a weaker position socially. She did not have the rights that women enjoy today. And the husband here is commanded to care for her. It's easy to make much more of our differences as men and women than we should, isn't it? We joke about them, we exaggerate them, we point them out. It's easy to consider our own position, our own temperament, our own way of thinking as better or superior than our spouses. But believers are called to remember that Christ is the model for them both. Think of that. Neither caring, self-sacrificing leadership nor humble, servant-minded submission was beneath our Christ. He does both. Wives, you can submit because Jesus submitted for you. He gave up the rights of godhood. And husbands, you can give yourself in self-sacrificing love because that's exactly what he did for you. Third, consider your eternal future. It says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Men, you need to embrace this verse with great conviction this verse means that jesus christ values your wife so much that he willingly entered into this world submitted to ungodly and unjust authorities and he spilled his blood on purpose so that both you and your spouse could have eternal life is there any greater statement in the bible that affirms her value the God of heaven thought she was worth dying for. Don't you dare despise her. Don't you dare belittle her. If he thinks that way of her, you ab adopt his view. We must not ever dare demean others for whom he willingly gave up his life. God takes the Christian husband's duties 
so seriously that he refuses to hear our prayers if we abuse our position. Peter will later say in chapter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is the kind of pride, husbands, that God actively and resolutely resists. One author concludes succinctly, Peter leaves absolutely no room here for any sort of domineering. So do you see how Peter is demolishing both extremes of passive resignation of a lazy leader as the husband and the overbearing harshness of an authoritarian husband? He says neither one is appropriate ever. Instead, Peter again elevates the husband's responsibility before God. And one author wisely concludes the relationship to God determines the nature of the marriage relationship. Through the knowledge of God, the husband learns to set a new value on the wife. Not merely as the mother of his children, but as the partner in his eternal hope and in his prayers. I believe verse 7 in its address to husbands is meant to encourage these wives in this vulnerable position. They're to hear the authority of the apostle pointing men to their accountability before God. So I want to conclude with just this question. Does your marriage, does your interaction with male or female reflect the life-changing power of the gospel? Are you embracing an ungodly culture's view of men and women's interactions or of their worth? The winsome testimony of a Christ-honoring marriage has an unparalleled ability to demonstrate the power of the gospel. Think about how Peter is stating that so boldly. Nothing can change couples like this. Nothing can provide you with a more satisfying marriage than fully embracing these truths that you're ultimately serving Christ. You're submitting to him, both of you. And you want to honor him by the way you interact with each other. Even when the marriage is difficult. One author shares this personal story of how God was actively working in the life of a Christian woman who entrusted herself to God in a difficult marriage. Her daughter writes, When my mother and dad were married, she was a new believer, and he had recently gone forward in a church service to receive Christ as his Savior. It became evident, however, that my dad had no real interest in anything spiritual. So through the years, he would drive us to church and some years attend at Christmas. My mother faithfully lived for the Lord and taught us from the word. When I was 13, she found out that my dad had been unfaithful. I can still remember a few days later sitting at the kitchen table as she read to me from 1 Corinthians seven thirteen: If the unbelieving husband wishes to remain, let him remain. That settled it for her. Theirs was not a happy marriage, but we were a family. 29 years later, in a morning service in a small church on his 72nd birthday, my dad stood at the invitation and truly accepted Jesus as his Savior. He was a changed man. He prayed. They had a Bible study in their home. And six years later, he went to be with the Lord he loved, joined five years later by my mother. I praise the Lord for his faithfulness and for my mother's obedient to Scripture and faithful witness through the years. 
The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to anyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for challenging texts. We thank you for texts that bring us to our knees, that cause us again to consider what we really are embracing, the values that we are embracing, that cause conflict within our hearts because we're having to give up some things that we want or want to hold on to or want to believe. Father, you are wiser than we are. And though we'd rather choose sometimes life to work out according to our understanding or our design, we trust that you know us best, you love us most, your design is good. Help us to trust you. Lord, for those spouses who are suffering through very difficult marriages, who are grieving at what feels like loss of what could be, Give them hope in their relationship with Christ. Give them hope that the power of the gospel lived out through their life has the ability to win that hardened heart to you. May that be an encouragement even to parents with wayward children. May this be informative to those who are looking for a spouse. May this be encouraging to those who are under authority, to recognize that how we live, that allowing the gospel to change us has the ability to make a dramatic effect in the lives that we live before. Give us grace to hear this word. Give us grace this week to apply it, to believe it, to trust that you are a good and gracious God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.